Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Tamara Lucas. It's November the 13th, 2019, and I'm here today with my guests to talk about this year's Lancet countdown on health and climate change, the 2019 report. Today, I'm joined by Professor Hilary Graham and Professor Hugh Montgomery. Hilary is a commissioner and lead of one of the working groups, and Hugh is co-chair of the Lancet Countdown. Hilary, could you introduce yourself, please? I'm Hilary Graham. I'm Professor of Health Science at the University of York in the UK. Yes, I'm Hugh Montgomery. I'm Professor of Intensive Care Medicine at UCL, and I co-chair the Lancet Countdown. Hugh, you've been involved with the Lancet Countdown for a long time, so perhaps you could explain some of the context and history of the Lancet Countdown and its scope and vision. I suppose some of us started clocking the health impacts and implications of climate change probably 20-odd years ago, and they just weren't talked about. Um, and in fact, there was even more obligation then than now about the fact, oh, it's not getting warmer, there's no such thing, if it is there, it's not a threat... And then it changed a bit to become, well, OK, maybe it's happening and maybe it's not very good for tree frogs and polar bears. But no one, but no one was talking about health. And when I went to the first conference, the parties negotiations back in the day, um, I was one of only two doctors out of 35,000 people there. Um, it just didn't feature, there wasn't a single line in the whole of the negotiating text about human health. So the Lancet Commission, the first commission, um, reported on the likely health impacts of climate change, and that would be going back to 2008-9. And that was the first major international commission that said climate change is a major threat. Uh, we had the banner headline, it was the greatest threat to human health of the 21st century. That was followed by another commission a year or so later about the health co-benefits of action. And then Richard Horton, the Atlanta editor, came back to us a few years later and said, listen team, all that stuff you said was coming down the pipeline. We thought you meant in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, and we've had the whole lot in the last four. We really need another report. So we did another countdown. And then we became aware that rather than this limping on every, like, a, you know, the UNFCCC reports every seven years, that we really needed to be reporting now on an annual basis about the threat that climate change posed to humanity and what action was being taken to address it so that people could really see what was changing. And that's how the Lancet Countdown was formed. Uh, it's a collaboration between the Lancet, uh, the Wellcome Trust, who funded it to the tune of well over five million, and it's big. Um, it's now got, uh, I think from memory, 27 countries, 35 institutions, reporting annually on 41 indicators relating to climate change and health, across five different domains, impacts, exposures and vulnerability, adaption, planning and resilience, mitigating actions to co-benefits, economics and finance, then finally, and not least, public and political engagement. So that's how it came about, that's where we're at now, and I'd like to think we've contributed something to the changing narrative that's now taking action now. So from what you're saying, it's a really large body it's multifaceted, it's intersectorial, it and now that it's annual, it's, it's really beginning to show some trends um, and we're, we're able to, to see with the tracking what's actually happening and changing. It's true, and I, I should pick up on your point there. As you say, this isn't just a group of geeky doctors. Um, this is a proper multidisciplinary group of people from around the entire world climate scientists, ecologists, mathematicians, geographers, engineers, 
energy experts, technologists, food, livestock and transport experts, economists, social and political scientists, as well as doctors um, and healthcare professionals. So it's, it really is truly a, a global and multidimensional grouping. Yes, no, it's, it's quite an achievement. So we'll talk about some of the key points in this year's report in a moment. But first of all, I wanted to um, look back because we last recorded a podcast exactly one year ago for the 2018 countdown report, the three of us. And so much has happened in the past 12 months. I think it feels as though we're at a tipping point of both interest and engagement action and activism, possibly even alarm. So I thought we might reflect on this at the outset and, and the many, many movements and events that we've seen in the past 12 months. Well, I, I think your term alarm um, is evident um, because I think many things have happened in the last 12 months and it's extraordinary to think it is only that um, recent that have stopped ordinary people in their tracks. Uh, so I think we've seen people becoming alarmed because climate change, changes in their climate, is becoming part of their everyday experience. So it's becoming more evident in more and more people's lives, in floods and storms, droughts, heat waves, wildfires, the areas that we look at in the report. So we've got more and more people who now know directly what climate change feels like, what it does to lives, what it does to the health. Uh, to health and including the health of those they care for. Uh, and I also think alarm's been triggered by recent reports, and I'm sure we'll come on to the youth movement. But in particular, I think the report from the UN Scientific Panel on Climate Change, the IPPC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mm. that was published in October 2018. And I think it brought many people, particularly young people, up short because it made clear that there's less than half a degree of global warming to go before the world passes the 1.5 degree threshold into a planetary environment no one would want to go. And that report made clear that this threshold could happen as soon as 2030. And to stop that happening, the next 10 years are, are absolutely crucial. I think the youth movement has drawn attention to this, but it's there in black and white that global carbon dioxide emissions need to be cut by around half um, of their 2010 levels by 2030. That is by the time a child born today reaches 11, and then to reach net zero by 2015. So I think, I know Hugh will have um, lots to say about this, but the engagement that we've seen uh, over the last 12 months has been particularly the mobilization of young people around climate change. And this, the school strikes in September 2019, that was two months ago, saw millions of young people in countries across the world go on strike for the climate. And it was mainly reported across the social media as well as the mainstream press. Yes, six million children, I believe. But I can't think of many families whose lives weren't touched by that strike. I've been trying to scroll back through the friends I've got, and I think most of the families I know had a child who knew about or who was involved in this action, which has given a major political voice um, to children and young people. And I think it's really important because we often forget that young people have no direct representation in civil society and in elections and rely on adults. Um, to act on their behalf. 
I know Greta Thunberg has been the catalyst and the major spokesperson, but she repeatedly notes that the engagement of young people in climate change is a global phenomenon and that there are therefore lots of Greta Thunbergs. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll reflect more on that, but I absolutely agree with you. The world has been transformed in terms of climate change politics over the last 12 months. Yes, I, I agree with everything that's been said there. Um, we, we've now seen change, and I think the reasons are the same. Um, if you'd asked me six months ago how I felt about what we were doing and how successful we've been, I was saying to people, this has been an absolute waste of 20 years of my life. It's made no difference at all. Nothing but nothing is changing. And yet suddenly, in the last six months, as Hillary points out, things have changed dramatically. And I agree. I think there are a couple of factors I point to. The first is exactly what Hillary says. People are now seeing extreme changes in their weather routinely, wherever they live in the world. And you, that makes it real to people. What they've heard about, they're now seeing and they're now feeling. The second feature, of course, was uh, the Attenborough effect, which is widely quoted to me, the documentary by David Attenborough, mainly about oceans, where he, but then he starts to add plastic pollution, and that in its own right seemed to trigger people's thinking about climate change. Now, it's caused a bit of a problem because over 70% of people in Britain now think the most important thing they can do for climate change is to recycle, but at least it's put it on the agenda. Mm. The other thing I would say is that on your issue about fear is for 20 years, uh, Hillary and I and others have been told that we aren't allowed to say that climate change is bad or dangerous or scary because if you say scary things people run away and my problem with that has always been that if you say nice things about it it's not scary and therefore why would you act and if you're offering people a happier alternative to something that's not very harmful why would they change so I think the issue now is how we transform that fear, which people have every right to feel, and so they should, because it is desperately, desperately dangerous right now. Um, we've got to transform that, transform that fear into action that's meaningful. And at the moment, we've got action on the streets. We've got Greta Thunberg. We've got Extinction Rebellion. But that now needs to be moved into radical, radical scalar change in policy that we're just not seeing. And if we wish to, we can touch upon the metrics that the countdown reports this year, but it, to my mind, deeply, deeply pessimistic because there really is no meaningful action in driving down greenhouse gas emissions at all. In fact, the emissions are accelerating. That's really very pertinent um, and leads nicely into the actual detail of the report, I think. So the, the, the report itself is structured, as you said um, earlier, Hugh, in your introduction, with 41 indicators across five domains. So perhaps you could explain a little about um, the first three domains, Hugh, please. I suppose I could pick them off in any number of orders, but, I, but I'm going to pick up a little on the first point I made there, which is really what's happened to fossil fuel use and emissions in the last year. Now, we like to think that this mass action has really generated great change, but let's look at the details. So what we know is that in the year of 2018, which is the year we report, um, total investment in the global energy system remained much the same at around 1.85 trillion US dollars globally a year, 1.85 trillion dollars. We know that the carbon intensity of the energy system, so the amount of CO2 you emit 
per watt, let's say, of power generated has remained unchanged since 1990. So we're not seeing any changes at all in improvements in CO2 emissions with the amount of fossil fuel or other energy supplies we're using, even with renewables. You'd like to think that there's been a reduction in fossil fuel um, investment and uh, a, an increase in low carbon energy. Uh, and in fact, that's not true. We've seen an increase in investment in fossil fuels after the 1.85 trillion and investment in low carbon energy has slightly decreased. Renewables even now only represent 5% of global energy generation, which is woefully short of where we need to be. And of course, if, if you see a small percentage rise on a very small fraction, there isn't much difference. Which is worrying because if we look at the 2016 to 18 data, total primary energy supply from coal has gone up by 1.7%. So it, that had fallen previously, but it's now rising. CO2 emissions to the energy sector haven't gone down. They've gone up. They've gone up by 2.6% in that same period of time. The transport sector emissions have gone up by 0.7% per capita in the last year if we have data, which is 2016. In agriculture, greenhouse gas emissions rose again for, uh, in the 2000-2016 period by 14% for livestock, to over 3.2 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. Um, and that's coming from crops, but it's also coming from ruminants, which contribute 93% of total livestock emissions of nearly 3, uh, 3 gigatons of CO2 equivalent a year. Um, the largest increase in emissions in that 2016 period comes from poultry. That's up 58%, um, a massive rise. Total global greenhouse gas emissions in 2017 are the highest ever recorded, 53.5 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. And remember that a fifth of the CO2 we emit today is still warming our atmosphere in 33,000 years' time, and 7% is still warming our planet in 100,000 years' time. Uh, the health sector, we're as bad as anyone else. We cause 4 to 6% of global emissions, and that's rising as health utilization increases. And global fossil fuel consumption subsidies, so the subsidization of the use of fossil fuels, has risen by 50% over three years to approaching well, just over 427 billion US dollars. And those values for subsidy don't even include the negative externalities, so the cost of managing the ill health, for instance, that these things cause. So you can see that on that first set of metrics alone, whilst it's very nice to report that investments in low carbon technologies has gone up, they've gone up in terms of absolute value pitifully and almost meaninglessly when compared to the huge actual real increases in fossil fuel generation, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, fossil fuel investment and greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so this is really what I was saying just now. We need to translate this fear into action to see that turnaround. Now, the turnaround for the best form of catastrophe we can hope for with this drop down even over 30 years, which in my view is far too slow. Look at the weather changes we've already got. We cannot keep adding to this any longer. But even if we allow for a 30 year glide path, we need to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 7.8% by 2030. 
year on year starting this year. And that's really, for my view, the major thrust of this report. Uh, it should marry very much with, with uh, and echo with the general concern the public is expressing. Now, if you'd like, I can go through other elements, but I should probably allow Hillary to talk a little because um, otherwise I should be monopolising things. That's a very good summary that you've given, I think, and the fossil fuels in particular um, and the action that's actually needed year on year, which I, I don't want to keep using the word alarm, but it's it doesn't seem to tally with the messages and the actions that we're actually seeing, even though we are seeing some positivity and, and movements, etc. So there does seem to still be a bit of a disconnect. Um, but perhaps, yes, for sure, perhaps, Hilary, you'd like to talk about um, some of the other domains and indicators that you've been involved with as well. Yes, certainly. Uh, well, can you already summarise uh, the key uh, indicators from the economic um, domain? So I thought maybe I could pick up on the fifth domain, uh, which is about public and political engagement in health and climate change. And this domain focuses on a range of areas um, of potential engagement. It looks at the media, it looks at governments, it looks at the corporate sector and it looks at individual engagement. And the kind of overall take home message is that while engagement in health and climate change together, those interlinked areas has increased, climate change continues to be represented in those different domains, different areas in ways that don't connect it with people's health. So if you like health and climate change remain in separate silos in newspapers, in the government's mind, in the public's mind. So if we think about newspaper coverage, which is one of the areas that we look at in our discussion of public and political engagement, the coverage of climate change predominantly doesn't talk about people's health. And if we think about the individual level engagement, individuals typically seek out information either on health or on climate change but not on the two areas together. And I think that kind of points both to the importance and the challenge for the countdown. Because mm. thinking back over what you were saying, we need to put a human face on climate change. And health is a human face on climate change. But at the moment, those areas of health and climate change in key areas of public and political discussion, debate, engagement, are being represented in, as two separate fields. So, so how could humanising the climate narrative help with that, Hilary? I think it's hugely important and has the power to transform how we talk and think about climate change. If I could try and kind of unpack a little bit, if we think about how climate change is being discussed and presented in, in the media, in science reports, by governments, etc. It's been presented in calendar time. So scientific reports talk about the changes in the climate that have occurred over the last 800,000 years or since the pre-industrial period in the 1850s and up to the last year or up to 2019. And then climate change is presented again in calendar time in terms of trends to 2030 or to trends to 2050. And that's the way targets are talked about as well. But people don't think in calendar time, they think in personal time. So personal time is about your own lifetime and the lifetime of those you care about. 
And I think one of Greta Thunberg's enormous contributions to climate change debate is the way she consistently frames climate change in personal time. So you may remember she made a very powerful speech at the UN climate change meeting in December last year. And she turned Canada time into biographical time and spoke about 60 years hence and being 75 years old and perhaps celebrating her birthday with her children and asking us how they would view the actions we took around the climate. That's the current generation of adults. It's a very powerful way to track climate change impacts across the lives of those you love. And the Lancet Countdown is doing that in its 2015, uh, 2019 report. It, it's a landmark to me because it's spelling out the lifelong consequences of rising temperatures for the health of a child born today if we follow the business of usual pathway. And he's given many examples of how very much we are following that pathway. Um, so the report describes how as children grow up, they're going to be among the most to suffer from crop failures and food insecurity, the climate-related rise in infectious disease and the increase in air pollution. So I think this translation from calendar time to personal time is a real way of breaking in um, to the kind of public conversations we need so urgently to have. Um, and it happens so rarely. So just, just to finish on, on this, I think what happens when people read these sorts of numbers, 2030, 2050, 2100, they either switch off or they have to do some constant back translating to make sense of it in their own lives. To, to think, ah, 2030, how old would I be? Ah, 2050, how old would my children be? And I suspect if you ask someone, certainly if you ask me, how old they would be in a given year in 2030 or 2050 or 2100, they would have to work it out as a piece of mental arithmetic rather than that being their instinctive way of anchoring themselves in time. So just to say again, I think our report, the Lancet 2019 report, is a real milestone because it's helping people to think about climate change and its health impacts in personal terms, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their lifetime and the lifetimes of their children. Thank you. No, I absolutely agree. I think the executive summary, while it's chilling to read, it, it really does make make it very relatable and the the whole business as usual versus this is what we could actually do and the responsibility of of people on the planet today as well to think about the future i think it's it's a very powerful um piece of work really to read yeah. i think so tomorrow i should pick up as well because i think um in in some ways our alarm bell that we've been ringing for a long time but now ring louder still in this report has even been superseded since its submission by ever more alarming scientific data that have appeared in the last two months. And I point to two others, which demonstrate that every estimate, this has been a repeated feature, every time we or any other group have estimated the climate impacts of, uh, of fossil fuel emissions, they've always been radical underestimates. No one has ever overestimated the hazard or risk. So the NASA and NOAA data that were published probably six or eight weeks ago now have shown that we're up from sea level rise rates of a little over a millimetre moving 
five or six years ago into 3.2 millimeters. We're now at five millimeters a year, a centimeter of sea level rise every two years. And what we need to remember is that rate is not going to stop. That rate of melt is going to accelerate. Sea level rise is going to get faster and faster and faster. And if you then add low pressure ridges that let sea level rise acutely when low pressure comes in and massive flooding and storms, we're in for real trouble. Mm. And the second paper came out in Nature only about a week or two ago, maybe three, which showed that estimates of flood risk have been grossly underestimated. There'd been essentially the satellites had been um, uh, fixed on the wrong level as ground level because they've been confused by rooftops and treetops. And if you recalibrate, they're talking about 150 million climate migrants from uh, flooding um, within 30 years. So talking about the child born today being a little, un a little over 30 years old. Mm. Now, if we make the, I think, a correct assumption that has always, these things have always been underestimated, you can see the level of threat we're already facing here. Um, this is indeed, it's been much used, this phrase, climate emergency. This is an emergency. And every passing minute that we delay in acting now is storing up catastrophe for a child born today or a child even born 20 years ago. Thank you. That's, that's a, a very sobering comment to make. Um, are there any more indicators that you'd particularly like to talk about in detail? Uh, yes. Well, we've introduced an indicator that captures individual engagement in health and climate change. I've already mentioned this is now one of the indicator areas that we um, are discussing in the report. Um, for that individual engagement, we are focusing on the internet as an increasingly important site for individuals to seek information on issues that concern them. Uh, and we track individual information seeking uh, on health and climate change by using aggreg aggregated and anonymized data made available by Wikipedia. Uh, and we look at what is called clickstream activity. For example, pick, clicking on a page from on health to one on climate change. And what we found was lots of clickstreams between health articles and lots of clickstreams between climate change articles, but very little clicks across these sets of articles. So that's an example of an indicator which we've introduced, which really mirrors the findings of the other indicators that we're already including of engagement, which is this silo approach to health in one box and climate change in another. And obviously what we hope over time and very rapid time is that those connections will become much more pronounced among individuals that they really will begin to connect these in a much more sustained way. Uh, and as part of our media indicator, where we're looking at global newspapers, we've not only tracked trends in newspaper coverage over time, but in this report, the 2019 report for the first time, we're drilling down into the content of coverage. Uh, and we focused on leading newspapers in the US and in India and we've asked how are the connections between health and climate change being represented in those newspapers. And the detail of our findings is covered in the 2019 report. Well, I suppose we could briefly mention some of the headlines for the other indicators. The, the big things for me have always been the issue of extreme weather events and leading to migration and war. 
And one of the reasons for those are lack of food security. So we are indeed seeing continued ground, downward trends in global yield potential for all major crops. And that's been going on for a long time, threatening food production and security. In terms of infectious disease, nine of the 10 most suitable years for transmission of dengue fever um, on record have occurred since the year 2000. And since 1980, the number of days suitable for Vibrio, as you'll know, a suitable cause of diarrhea and so forth, doubled. Um, we've still got deaths related to particulate pollution from burning fossil fuels. People would have seen in recent weeks the reports from India, um, where you know the air is almost unbreathable. Uh, we've still got a, at least 2.9 million deaths from the PM 2.5s, the 2.5 micron particles in 2016. Global deaths are a minimum of 7 million a year from that. Um, in terms of wildfire exposure, I suppose that's been in the press a fair bit, and quite rightly, because 77% of countries have experienced an increase in the population exposures to wildfires um, in recent years. Uh, the increase to over 21 million exposures in India and 17 million more exposures in China uh, over these recent years. Um, we know these extreme climate-related events, wildfires, and others are leading to very substantial global global economic losses, um, estimated currently at 166 billion US dollars. So there really are genuine impacts on health and economies, and there are huge benefits to going lower carbon in preventing that harm and the economic damage that comes with it. So one would have thought it's a little bit of a no-brainer uh, to take action. In terms of heat waves, we could go on, but labor productivity estimates show that for every degree increase in wet bulb uh, globe temperature beyond 24 degrees, um, labor productivity falls by between about 1% and 5%. And these are really big impacts on outdoor work, whether it be building or indeed working in agriculture. And we've got metrics that demonstrate those impacts, even in the southern states of America, in Texas and elsewhere. Um, that's probably enough for now. Uh, I think we've covered most of those headlines there, but, but none of these things are going in the right direction. But why would they? The driver here is greenhouse gas emissions, and those are going up. The downstream impacts can only be getting worse, and they are. So last year we ended on your favourite examples of individual actions that can be taken to reduce personal contribution to climate change. And this year I think we've seen the collective actions and some of the high-profile divestments at academic and other institutions. So perhaps you could comment on, on what you would like to highlight as mattering and make, making a contribution. So I mean, one of the heartening things is that we are seeing action and it seems to be across sectors. UCL, my own university, um, has taken action, and quite rightly so, its own academics across climate and geography and mathematics and medicine and others have pointed out the harm that climate change can cause, and the university has responded. So our campus is going to be zero carbon within a matter of a handful of years. Um, plastics, we're going plastic free, if that helps as well. Um, we've gone already to 100% renewable electricity supplier. So I think this is the point I would make really, that we need to translate fear into action. And there are actions that we can all take. And if we feel that on their own they're meaningless, we are wrong. 
because together, not only is the sum total of reduction in greenhouse gas emissions substantial, but the change in money matters. So if everyone listening to this podcast were to act and get 10 other people to act, to move their electricity supply to one that's 100% renewable, in Britain there's a handful of those, Oxford Energy came first in the Witch Report recently, but Good Energy is another. If they all did that, that money no longer goes to fossil fuels. They're denied that money. Meanwhile, the money goes to investment in renewables. And that means the pension funds move, which means the hedge funds move, which means the markets move. So together, if we all jump, we can make the earth shake. And that's the encouraging thing of this year. Um, We're seeing action and concern. Now let's all turn that into doing something meaningful. And my vote, it'd be interesting to know what Hillary's would be, is for everyone to go immediately zero carbon um, on their energy supply. I'd cut the flying out. And I'm very, very heartened by the move to more vegetable-based diets. I think that's another huge win to health because vegetable-based diets are healthy. And it's another huge win for climate change in reducing use of uh, meat and products from ruminant uh, cattle. Well, I wanted just to sketch in something that I think goes before what Hugh's saying. Uh, And I think the most important individual action is not to turn your back on climate change. I think for many people, particularly in high-income countries, they can afford to live lives that feel relatively unaffected by climate change and find it hard and often terrifying to turn around and face it and engage with it. And given that people in high-income countries are represented by governments that play such a major part in global action around climate change, if you're turning your back on climate change from everything we say, what we've been saying, it means that you're walking into the future backwards. So you're turning your backs to something and continuing to live with your your ordinary lives. So to me, the most important and sort of basic action is to, to not to do this and to face the fact that climate change is happening and that many of us are actively contributing to it and that the next 10 years are absolutely crucial in shaping the world that will exist in future. And therefore, the next 10 years are absolutely crucial in terms of the actions that we take. So I wanted to pick up on what Hugh was saying, because I think the second kind of subliminal message in that is that individual action is more effective when it has a collective dimension. So if I think about myself, um, I'm taking action through the communities I belong to. Uh, I'm not very good at solo actions. I'm sure other people are better at it, but I'm much better at taking individual action through the communities that matter to me. So, for example, a family or a set of families collectively agreeing uh, to move to a low-carbon diet or to change fuel suppliers or to move to low-carbon travel, to drop flying, whatever it is. If you're a religious person working with others in your place of worship to press for change, Religions, established religions, are very, very powerful spokespeople and can have an enormous effect. And we saw that with the Pope's encyclical, Our Common Home in 2015, or Find Mutual Strength, the campaign by joining a social movement or a community group, or by working with colleagues in your workplace. And I think it's some of those actions, for example, working with colleagues in your workplace, that manages to change institutional practices because they know that the employees that are serving them in that organization 
are increasingly appalled by workplaces that don't disinvest, that don't institute green policies. So, so it was, it's really just to add a couple of points to what Hugh's been saying, which is that I think important individual actions start with not turning your back on climate change. And for me, working collectively with other groups that are important to you, uh, you get much more, to use a rather sort of parochial term, bang for your bucks. I think that they're both very good points to end on. Um, so at this point, I would like to just thank you both very, very much indeed, Professor Hugh Montgomery and Professor Hilary Graham. And thank you to our listeners. The Lancet Countdown Report 2019 is free with registration on thelancet.com and it's published today, the 13th of November 2019. Goodbye.